Hello, this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa, and tonight our topic is the politics and impact of immigration. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us here at Merge in downtown Iowa City. For those of you watching our live stream on Facebook or listening to the podcast, thanks for joining us. Hopeful people have come to the United States intent on making a better life for themselves and their families. They come from every part of the globe, and they come in different ways. Some enter through the legal immigration process, some approach the border with a claim of asylum, escaping the threat of violence or even death in their home countries, and some overstay their visas or enter the country illegally to look for work and an improvement in their economic and social circumstances. There are also people with less honorable motives crossing our borders. So in order to manage immigration, in our, our country has passed laws and created agencies empowered to enforce them. Our elected leaders and policymakers make choices, and those choices affect not only the lives of the immigrants who wish to live and work here, but also us American citizens. Uh, those policy choices impact the available workforce, the productivity of our farms and industries, the diversity and vibrance of our communities, and perhaps most importantly, the way that we look at ourselves as Americans. Generations have grown up believing that America's character and strength derives from its uniqueness as a melting pot. The question facing us today is this. Is this no longer who we are and no longer what we aspire to? Our goal with tonight's World Canvas is to move beyond the heightened rhetoric and try to understand the complexities that make the immigration discussion so nuanced and difficult. Uh, as one of my colleagues here in the room said, we need to talk. In that light, I'm very pleased to have an exceptional group of guests tonight to discuss from different points of view the thorny subject of immigration as a matter of national policy and community concern. Uh, we're also joined by two Iowans from different countries of origin who have not just assimilated into American culture, but thrived. Uh, so we'll begin the discussion by focusing on the history of immigration nationally, the impact of immigration in Iowa, and if our uh, additional guest arrives, we'll talk a little bit about the Federal Department of Homeland Security and some of the administration's uh, current policies. But um, let me first introduce the two guests are who are here with us. Uh, Bram Elias is a clinical professor in the College of Law. Thank you for joining us, Bram. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And Robin Clark Bennett is a labor educator in the UI Labor Center. Thanks, Robin. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so, Bram, I'd mm -hmm. like to go to you first, if you don't mind, so we can start the conversation with a common understanding of the origins and the sources of American immigration law. Um, how has the U.S. historically approached immigration? So I, I love talking about this. There, there are two uh, big points I often try and bring up when, when talking about the history of immigration law. One is the immigration apparatus, the system that we have today, is a very modern creation in American law. And for most of the nation's history, immigration was largely unregulated. And the presumption was just about anybody in the world who wanted to come to the United States could, with a few notable exceptions. Um, but the notion of regulating immigration and making it hard to enter the United States uh, really didn't start until 1952. And the current apparatus that we have for deciding who can enter and who can't and the process for getting here um, in its modern version didn't really exist until 2003. And I can talk about that for a little bit. The other thing, um, sort of on the flip side, there are some things about American immigration politics which are longstanding that I think a lot of people now feel like are just of the moment occurrences. And one is the deep role that um, race has played in who is allowed to enter the United States and who's not. In fact, the, the history of using race as a way of deciding who should come and who should go, who gets regulated, 
predates the actual immigration law system by over 100 years. Um, so for, for the, to, to the first point, to how new things are, for the first 100 years or so of the country, um, there was no concept of deciding that people couldn't enter the United States. All of the early immigration cases in the United States start showing up at the Supreme Court in the mid to late 1800s. There's a case called the Passenger Cases in 1849, Henderson versus Mayor of New York in 1876, the Head Money Cases in 1884. We're you know, nearly 100 years into the country at that point. And the issue in those cases was not who got to come to the United States and who didn't. It was given the fact that anybody who wants to come here can come here, uh, if there's going to be a tax charged on people as they arrive at the United States, who gets to collect it? Is it the state government or is it the federal government? And to give you a sense of the scope, we're talking about the last of those cases called the head money cases, called the head money cases because it was how much money per head a boat captain had to pay when they docked at a United States harbor. Uh, the issue was each person on the boat who was not a citizen, the captain would have to pay 50 cents. And who got to keep that money, the federal government or state governments? And that was fought over for about 50 years and eventually settled by the late 1800s that it would be the federal government. Um, but at the time, you know, in the, the you know, 1700s, early 1800s, late 1800s, there was no concept of denying people entry to the United States and no, certainly no process of uh, what, do you what applications do you have to make, what forms do you have to fill out, what offices do you have to go to. I know it's silly to use visual aids on the radio, um, but I actually got copies of my great-grandfather and my grandfather's naturalization certificates from when they became citizens. And my great-grandfather naturalized in New York City in 1903, and his naturalization certificate uh, was signed by the State Court of New York, trial court. In Iowa City, it would be like going down to the Johnson County Court and telling the judge, hey, I've been here a few years, can I become a citizen? And the local judge said yes, and that's how my, my great-grandfather became a citizen. My grandfather on another side of the family uh, naturalized in 1933. He was in Detroit. So here is his. That was at least a federal court, but it was still a court. It wasn't an immigration apparatus. And it says on his naturalization form, here's his naturalization with this identification, uh, color, white, complexion, dark, race, Hebrew. Uh, you know, th this is before there is an immigration apparatus the notion of classifying folks and thinking about their ability to enter the United States and to adjust to full status in the United States as being done by race runs pretty deep. And that's sort of the second point I would make, if that's all right, mm -hmm. um, which is the idea of regulating by race even before there was formal government rules on who came and who went, it runs very deep. So the first time um, the federal Congress, the United States Congress says, we're going to keep people from a, like a certain class of people out of the United States, is in 1882. Before 1882, no blanket policy denying people's entry to the United States. And uh, in 1882, Congress passed something called the Chinese Exclusion Act. This is not a subtle title for a bill coming through Congress, designed to exclude from the United States Chinese laborers arriving uh, largely at the West Coast. People who were present in the United States, Chinese folks who were in the United States could leave and return, but there was no new admission of Chinese laborers. Uh, in 1888, six years later, Congress said for the first time, you couldn't leave and return anymore. So once you were in the United States, you could stay, but anyone who left couldn't get back in. Um, and that was the first ever sort of like large policy of denying people entry to the United States at all. At that point, there was no concept of deportation. If you were in the United States, 
the idea that you could be removed. There was no agency that did that, no policy of anything like that. The concept of deportation arose for the first time in 1891 in something called the Immigration Act of 1891, and then another bill the next year called the Geary Act of 1892. The Geary Act said anyone who was Chinese who had not lived in the United States since before the Chinese Exclusion Act, couldn't prove they had lived there since then, had to be deported. And the test for whether you had lived in the United States before the, uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act was either you had a certificate from the government saying, I lived here, or you had a white witness who would testify and say, I promise this person had lived here in the United States uh, before that. And there was a case brought to the Supreme Court in what became uh, the Fong Yuting case in 1893, where someone said, I have a witness. I have proof that I lived here before this act. It's just that my witness is also Chinese. And uh, the Supreme Court said there is a, a division between the Supreme Court justices who thought um, because Chinese people were understood to be untruthful, this was an acceptable rule. And on the other hand, justices who said, well, don't get me wrong, I also dislike Chinese people, but I worry if we give the federal government the power to deport people at all, they might someday deport white people. Uh, I mean, it's in, it's in the opinion, and so the opposition was to the idea of deportation at all, and it was controversial, although eventually upheld in 1893. Um, that's around that same time, 1891 was the first time there was a policy-based approach to not letting people into the United States. So it wasn't, it wasn't just countries. The original issue was Chinese exclusion. In 1891, in the Immigration Act of 1891, it's the first time we see what is now known as public charge doctrine introduced, where if someone was unable to prove when they arrived at the United States, usually in a port, uh, that they would, be able, they would not be a, uh, require charity. Usually they had to have money on hand. Um, they could be excluded. Most of the cases that came up under the public charge doctrine at the time were usually leveled at Asian American or Asian women, largely Japanese and Chinese, on the concern that they would be prostitutes. If you didn't have enough money on hand to prove you could work, the assumption was foreign women were showing up to the United States to be prostitutes. There was a case in 1903 called Yamataya. Um, the, na the plaintiff's name was Yamataya, but because of the immigration and racial politics at the time, it is known in legal literature as the Japanese immigrant case. Uh, and in the Japanese immigrant case, there was an investigation into whether a, a Japanese woman who had showed up at a port uh, in Seattle, um, and they did an investigation into whether or not she was a prostitute. And the result of the investigation was she was unable to prove that she was not. Mm. Part of the reason she was unable to prove that she was not was that the investigation was done entirely in English, which she did not speak. And her non-response to questions like, are you a prostitute? was used to show that no, she did not, she could not meet the legal test of showing she was not going to be a prostitute or a public charge. Um, and she was one of, like an, a very early deportation. Large policy-based deportation, uh, barring beyond just individual countries, in 1917, there was something called the Immigration Act of 1917, 1920, uh, which, which barred immigration from the Asiatic barred zone, uh, which was most Asian countries except for Japan and the Philippines. 1924 was the first time there was a blanket policy about who could enter the country, something called the, uh, the Immigration Act of 1924 introduced national origins quotas, which said that a certain percentage of people from each country were limited. It, the only countries that actually hit that limit tended to be Southern Europe, Italy, and Greece. Uh, the modern system we have today, based on largely family-based immigration and employment-based immigration, that came into effect in 1952. That was the first time it showed up. And it is now seen as a move away from the explicitly race-based approach to immigration, unregulated approach to immigration we had before then. Although it's worth pointing out that at the time in 1952, um, when the Immigration and Naturalization Act was passed, 
it was vetoed by President Truman, who said this is too much like our racist history, which during the Cold War we are trying to get away from. We don't want to look like a racist country. Uh, so I veto the INA, and that veto was overridden by Congress. Um, and in one of the statements from the sponsors, Senator McCarran said that, yeah, but we can't be overrun by Southern European hordes. Uh, and so to avoid that, it's important that we have family-based immigration designed to tie future immigration to people who already live here. And that's really when the modern policy started, mm -hmm. what we now think of as family-based immigration, which accounts for about two-thirds of legal immigration to the United States. Um, that didn't show up until 1952. Mm -hmm. So when, when we look at 1952 up to, uh, mm -hmm. maybe, let's just take 9-11. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, you, you look at a period there. What, there were there were ebbs and flows, weren't there, in sort of um, public concern about immigration and immigration policy? Yeah, th there were. Um, although I have to, the, the main although there have been tweaks to the law since 1952, the, the main drivers in um, ebbs and flows in terms of population mm -hmm. uh, was usually conditions in the sending countries oh. and economic conditions in the United States. So there were economic pull factors here and economic and human rights push factors abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, real, the only meaningful legal change that really dealt with ebb and flow was increased immigration enforcement after 2003, which ended uh, what had been called um, circular migration. When, uh, when border crossing was not very heavily enforced, um, there were lots of immigrants who would work in the United States and return to a home country and return to the United States and return to a home country based on work season. Um, when border enforcement went up and illegal reentry and unauthorized status in the United States uh, started to carry immigration consequences, it, it made it unsafe not to enter the United States but to leave the United States for people who were working here and sending money home. And so it, was, it wasn't until the late 90s and the 2000s that you start to see an end to circular migration and immigrants who, who were coming here, not necessarily with the intent to remain, suddenly found it unsafe to leave for fear they could never reenter. And those people would not have documents. That, yeah, this is just in the yeah. undocumented population. Yeah. The, yeah. the lawfully documented path towards green cards <laughs> and citizenship status, mm -hmm. it was all push and pull factors, that's mm -hmm. right. Good. Well, thank you for starting us off on, on that. I appreciate it. And, and uh, Robin, I'd like to go to you now, if you don't mind. Um, um, give us a picture of immigration in Iowa, um, going back as far as you like. Sure. I mean, it's actually interesting. Um, as we were talking about the mid-1800s, there's a, um, a document that was distributed across Europe called Iowa, the Home for Immigrants. And it was translated in multiple languages, I think six or seven languages, and distributed widely to try to attract people to Iowa. Um, Fast forward years later, actually, I was raised in small town Iowa um, as the granddaughter of an immigrant from Colombia, South America. Um, she was one of the few immigrants in our community. Um, but, uh, you know, like many immigrants before her and afterwards, um, despite barriers and despite some discrimination that she experienced, she became a leader in the community and embraced, you know, her role um, in our community with passion. And, and I think that, you know, look, I've watched the population of small towns across our state um, age and diminish. And it's been exciting to watch young immigrant families breathe new life and energy and leadership into our, into our state. Um, so I want to um, actually talk about this issue. I work at the Labor Center, and I want to talk about this issue a bit from a labor lens, because um, I am particularly concerned that often um, anti-immigrant policies are framed as if they are in support of US-born workers. And I find that to um, entirely not be true. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, 
I mean, sort of maybe the quick way to say this is it's not the presence of people, but it's the absence of rights that poses a risk for workers, um, whether we're talking about immigrant workers or US-born workers. Um, immigrant workers themselves, um, throughout our country's history, have um, you know, come with um, sort of with, a, um, with new um, energy and determination to build the kind of community their families want, the kind of societies and workplaces their families need. And, um, and today is, is no exception. Immigrant workers across the country and in Iowa have led um, some of the most important organizing efforts to raise standards um, in industries, often industries that had been entirely excluded from the protection of labor laws. And so they're really blazing, um, you know, uh, trailblazing in, in industries that had been left out and had sort of been the Wild West. So if you look at um, the Domestic Workers Alliance, is, um, was uh, founded in recent years in New York City um, and became first a national network and then a global network that's begun to, um, to really shift the conversation um, in terms of the rights of, um, of domestic workers and began to establish domestic workers' bills of rights um, in states and countries across the world. Um, or if you look at Endelon, which is a leader both in the, in, in the area of immigrant rights and workers' rights um, and civil rights um, nationally, um, this is an organization of day laborers who had virtually no meaningful protections and certainly enforcement of labor standards under the law, um, but, but found a way to overcome barriers, to come together, um, educate each other, um, began to implement labor standards in the construction industry, in areas of the construction industry that had really been unregulated, and, um, and play a national role in, in, uh, mm -hmm. in establishing um, workplace protections um, and, and immigrants' rights. And, you know, we can go on and on. And um, uh, one of the biggest organizing victories last year was um, Barry workers in Washington state. Um, who came together and organized um, in a time that of uh, you know in which that's very difficult for any workers to organize in this current climate. Um, what really threatens the standards of U.S.-born workers um, has been the dismantling, the systematic dismantling of workers' rights. And in that context, um, the anti-immigrant policies that our country has been pursuing and our state has been pursuing um, especially jeopardize um, all workers and immigrant workers in particular. So, you know, if we take the reality that um, that you know, wage theft has been on the rise, for example, in industries across our economy. Um, employers who just don't pay even the minimum wage or overtime that's required by law. Um, and, um, and, and so part of that is about um, diminishing, um, sort of rolling back workers' rights standards themselves. Um, some of is it about, is it about the fact that um, in Iowa we have one enforcement officer um, to investigate all the cases of wage theft at a state level. Um, and if you combine that with anti-immigrant sentiment and targeting and, and terrorizing, really, um, immigrant families, um, the likelihood that people will be able to speak up and confront um, those abuses really diminishes. So, you know, when we terrorize millions of workers, added to um, an ill-equipped enforcement, you know, um, mechanism, what that means is that um, unscrupulous employers who want to take advantage of workers have um, much more ability to do so. Uh, before we go to Mary, I wanted to to ask you, maybe both of you, if you have uh, comments to make about. Um, 
uh, a recent raid that happened, an immigration raid that happened in Mount Pleasant some months ago, I think in May. And, um, you know, for the families involved and for the community, it was very traumatic. And um, 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 immigration and customs enforcement officers went to a cement factory and asked for papers. And those who didn't have documents were um, detained. And I imagine most of them were deported. I don't know what followed with all of those people. Um, uh, what is being done to help um, vulnerable immigrants, people who either have been uh, taken into custody or um, who fear the threat of detention uh, with the labor center or, or what you would know, um, Bram? Well, I'm, I'm happy to talk a little bit about um, some of what's publicly known about the raid, okay. uh, the raid itself. Uh, the university and the, the legal clinic I work at, uh, along with the labor center and some other um, immigration and criminal defense lawyers were all involved in sort of the immediate legal response to the raid. Um, so it, that's right, the, the raid was in May. Mm -hmm. uh, it is still not clear uh, whether the raid was primarily a criminal law enforcement mm -hmm. activity or uh, an immigration enforcement-led activity. Um, my understanding is that uh, ICE in its public statements, and Mary might know more about this, has talked about as a, as a criminal law enforcement um, activity where it was not primarily an immigration raid. I see. It was mostly looking into criminal investigation, either of individuals working at the plant or um, the individuals who ran the plant. But the local law enforcement themselves, the, the police chief in Mount Pleasant uh, gave a public presentation the day after the raid where he said this was a, an immigration activity and we've been asked to send all requests for information to, uh, to ICE and to Homeland Security. So it's, it is not publicly clear, at least, whether it was an immigration <laughs> enforcement activity or a criminal justice mm -hmm. activity, which are two totally separate tracks. Um, there were, I think, if I have the numbers right, either 30 or 31 people mm -hmm. uh, detained, lots of people interviewed on the site during the raid, almost all of whom were released as either the government was not seeking to hold them or they had lawful status to be here. Of this much smaller number of people who were actually detained and placed in immigration proceedings, um, I think 30, uh, of the 30 or 31, five were moved from immigration proceedings to criminal proceedings, uh, some of which are still going on in the federal level down in Davenport, but over, tw I think, 20, 25 of whom, uh, although placed in immigration proceedings, were subsequently bonded out of detention. And although they are going through very long, very slow deportation proceedings that will involve many years in front of the immigration court, their closest one is in Omaha, for the next three, four, five years, um, almost everyone who is picked up in the raid is back home in Mount Pleasant, mm -hmm. uh, like helping, you know, working with their families, trying to figure out whether they have a case to remain or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so the the perception, which I think a lot of people had, and on the first couple of days of the raid, I think many people thought, oh, there's a raid, people have been seized, everyone must be deported. Right. The immigration system actually doesn't, often does not work like that. There is, although not all immigrants have access to it, there is a court system, an immigration court system, which has some basic due process protections. And for immigration immigrants who are able to access that system, and if they're able to get legal representation, and if they're able to get out of detention and handle their case uh, by agreeing to show up in court, those proceedings take quite some time, years mm -hmm. usually. Mm -hmm. uh, and many of the immigrants have at least asserted that the folks who were picked up in the raid have asserted that they have some form of relief, whether it's 
asylum or family members here that might entitle them to stay in the United States permanently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, we won't know the full outcome of the raid until years from now. At the, when it first happened, it felt like a huge attack that was going to lead to lots of people being removed. It is possible that by the end of all of these proceedings, years from now, many of the people who were detained in the raid might wind up with better and more secure immigration status mm-hmm. at the end of the process, mm-hmm. things like green cards and a path to citizenship mm-hmm. than they had at the beginning, um, depending on how the court processes mm-hmm. play out. Mm-hmm. Um, but these, these raids, they have a, a very big impact when they first happen and then a long tail, both in terms of how the immigration cases get resolved and then the impact it has on the community that's first hit by the raid and then the mm-hmm. role of the folks having, you know, reorganizing their lives in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, that lasts quite some time and is still ongoing. Okay. Um, uh, thankfully, Mary Hogan has been able to join us, and um, I'm so glad you were able to make it. Boiled uh, by construction. No, it's a difficult time. We understand. Um, so Mary Hogan is a community relations officer in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. I'm so happy you could join us because, as you know from our prior communication, we're all just trying to understand our, our system and um, uh, some of the complexities about immigration and what's happening now in our country. And um, so. I wonder if you can just start a little bit by telling us about um, the beginnings of Homeland Security and uh, and what your charge is in relation to immigration. Sure. Department of Homeland Security was uh, formed in 2002 as a direct uh, response to 9-11. Um, it was created by uh, taking several agencies and putting them under one department, one umbrella, whose purpose was protecting the homeland. Um, Immigration Customs Enforcement was formed, that's one of the agencies under the the DHS umbrella, um, by taking components from previous immigration enforcement agency and previous customs and putting them into one um, organization, one agency. Um, With respect to what ICE is charged with, uh, we have three main components. We have Homeland Security Investigations, or HSI, we are awash in acronyms like any (laughs) government, any academic agency. Um, And I still will write the acronyms on the back of my notebook and look them up later sometimes. (laughs) Um, We have HSI, which is Homeland Security Investigations. They handle uh, criminal investigations, things like uh, cyber crimes, trafficking, smuggling, um, worksite enforcement, those sort of things. We have Enforcement Removal Operations, ERO. They are responsible for immigration enforcement. They enforce the laws that were passed by Congress. By extension, the orders that come from the judges uh, in EOIR, which is the Executive Office for Immigration Review. That's a fancy name for immigration court. Um, Those judges don't work for our agency. They're part of the Department of Justice. Um, Our third main component is um, the attorneys, because you can't have a government agency without lawyers. Uh, They handle the legal work for our agency. That's the Office of the Principal Legal Advisor, or OPLA, uh, the Office of Chief Counsel. They do the legal work for the agency, and then they appear in immigration court as well. Mm 
Well, um, to sort of cut to the chase, mm -hmm. many of us feel that we're living in times that feel a lot different from uh, prior years. Um, I'm old enough to have lived through lots of debates about immigration and back and forth in the Senate and the Gang of Age and all these things where everybody's working really hard to figure out something that works um, for the country in terms of um, uh, control of borders, but also a reasonable kind of immigration policy. And this administration is handling things somewhat differently than prior administrations, as, as I see it anyway, as a citizen. Um, the zero tolerance policy of the southern border has obviously created some um, um, uh, sort of shocking um, visions of kids in cages, parents separated from children, um, and um, I know that you don't set the policy. I'm not asking you to um, to do that uh, to explain perhaps the policy itself. But how how does the agency um, how does the agency explain the fact that they now can't put together some of the children and parents who are separated at the border because of a lack of preparedness, as indicated by the recent Inspector General report? So I. I I have a couple of things to say before that. Um, obviously, the title of this program dealt with politics involved with immigration. I'm not a politician. I'm a civil servant. Um, I work for Immigration Customs Enforcement. Our immigration enforcement is primarily interior. It's primarily the interior of the nation, not the southern border. Um, we don't. And I think one of the most difficult things, um, and, and if you walk away with nothing tonight, uh, my hope is that we all walk away with an, at least a, an appreciation of how incredibly complex these matters are. Um, there is a conflation of responsibilities and agencies and activities and tasks. Um, my agency does not um, have responsibility for unaccompanied children. Um, we do our best, our level best, um, to um, follow every court order with respect to um, what you were talking about, but um, this is something that that might be a little beyond what um, uh, what I can talk about. Again, you know, with respect to immigration enforcement, we're primarily interior, mm -hmm. so that's sure. not necessarily something that that we'd yeah. be dealing with here in Iowa. Yeah. What would be your main um, activities here in Iowa? Sure. Um, so in Iowa. Um, I, I, you know, I talk about immigration enforcement, and I know we've heard a little bit about um, anti-immigrant policies, um, raids, that sort of thing. Um, I work for a law enforcement agency. We enforce the laws, so we don't deal with immigration as such. We deal with immigration enforcement. We don't get involved until somebody breaks the law, um, and that's important to remember. We also, you know, we don't conduct raids. Raid kind of is, is reminiscent of a, a free-for-all. When we target a business, when we target a person, we know who we're looking for. Um, beyond that, we also can't pretend that there are other people who might be breaking the law. We're not gonna pretend that they don't, um, but we are interested in public safety, in national safety, and community safety. So we are dealing with, obviously, in immigration enforcement in the interior of the country. We're also um, dealing with, we have agents who are doing investigations into cyber crimes, into trafficking of people, into trafficking of drugs, keeping drugs from um, entering our communities. Cyber crimes, people are getting scammed left and right. 
document fraud, any number of, of, we have over 400 federal statutes that we're responsible for enforcing. So obviously immigration enforcement is one. Also the criminal investigations are, mm -hmm. are a huge part of what we're doing. Yeah. And, and Joanna, it might be worth pointing out, um, I mean, Mary talked about the conflation of different agencies and responsibilities, and that's that's a very real concern. I think it's a, a problem with public understanding of how things mm -hmm. work too. So when, when Mary mentions um, that ICE doesn't get involved until someone's violated mm -hmm. a law. There, there are also two totally separate legal structures at issue here. Mm -hmm. One is civil violations of immigration law, mm -hmm. which is separate from violations of criminal law. Uh, and parts of ICE work with both. Homeland Security Investigations does do a lot of criminal investigation. ICE Enforcement and Removal Operations does not. ERO just does immigration law issues. And the immigration law system is an it has its entirely separate court system, the immigration court system, and the determinations made in that court are which category of legal status do you fall into. Right. Um, it, to say that someone who is in the immigration court system has violated a law, it's not wrong because you, someone might think they're in one box of status, say a temporary status when in fact they're permanent or permanent when they're temporary or some kind of documentation when in fact they're undocumented or has some form of protection and they don't. But it's largely an administrative system for figuring out how to categorize individuals. It is completely separate from the criminal court system, which goes in front of either the state criminal court or the federal criminal court where people have legal protections, they're entitled to lawyers to defend them, there are burdens of proof that the prosecutors have to prove that are quite high, they're regulated highly by the Constitution, there's years of uh, statutes, but also litigation, lawsuits, and constitutional decisions regulating the criminal system. And so, while Mary is right, immigration is not supposed to be involved if there's no question of someone being on the wrong side of a legal question. It's, it would be a mistake to conflate um, someone where the immigration court system has to adjudicate what kind of legal status applies to them. That's a very different question and a very different legal system and a very different set of issues from has someone committed a crime. <laughs> In immigration court, nobody is being asked, did you commit a crime? And no one is being judged in terms of innocent or guilty. That's not an immigration court question at all. It's just a matter of which sort of status applies to you. And it's also, excuse me, it is important, I think, to remember, though, that crossing the border illegally is a crime. So I'd like to talk a little bit about laws and how we choose to enforce them. I think we have to decide what we believe in in a country, as a country, and how we choose to enforce the laws on the books and how we choose to invest our resources, you know, really should reflect our beliefs. So, you know, I've witnessed for years employers viol flagrantly violating basic workplace laws, whether it's not paying workers the wages they're owed, which has incredible consequences for their children, their health, their opportunities, um, for you know, firing people for union activity, um, creating unsafe workplaces that lead to injury and death. And when those things are reported, those laws are violated. And when those, law, those, you know, those violations are reported, most often the response is a simple slap on the wrist. It might be a posting saying, I won't do it again. Literally. It might be, in the case of wage theft, that they simply have to repay the wages months later or years later that we're not paid to workers. So that's the consequence of employers who violate those laws, which have detrimental effects across the community. Meanwhile, in Mount Pleasant is a good example, I think. There are 32 workers 
who are you know, working peacefully in the community and have been there for years, contributing their labor, contributing their taxes. And the response to their existence and presence in this country is four layers of law enforcement who descend with helicopters, tasers, dogs, and, and um, you know, both federal, state, county, and, um, and, and uh, municipal law enforcement in response. And I think that those two responses to, you know, to violations of laws are, you know, extraordinarily out of balance. And then, in fact, if we flipped the scales and thought really carefully about very serious enforcement of workers' rights um, for workers of all backgrounds, um, that we might come closer to having the kind of country that many of us um, believe we should have. And I think historically, Robin is on to something very important, which is that now we, we conflate often um, the concept of criminal law and immigration law. Uh, and they, there is some overlap there, but historically, the the sort of the real larger overlap um, has been labor regulation and labor market regulation and immigration law. Uh, you know, the issue with cases like the Chinese Exclusion Act went back when the modern concept of immigration regulation began. The power to regulate immigration at all. The big issue was what to do with Chinese laborers who had worked on the railroads, and uh, as the railroads were nearing completion, there was a workforce. What what was going to be done with it? And immigration was used, I mean, a lot, much of the pressure that came on immigration politics was labor politics of the time. And I think it's, it, it, that's not talked about as much now, but I think does still have a lot of resonance in, mm -hmm. in the modern situation. Mm -hmm. And it's important because um, I think this is an example of sort of an extreme of what we're talking about here today, removing Chinese workers from the equation who supposedly were dragging down labor standards and their removal would somehow lift up standards for everyone did not create rights. What created rights was when workers banded together across race and ethnicity in textile mills and mines, including mines here in Iowa, and asserted together, asserted um, uh, the importance of rights for workers you know, across, um, across race, ethnicity, national origin. Um, that's what created, um, you know, one might call the middle class in our country, right? That's what created the New Deal, ultimately. That's what established basic protections in our country. And, uh, and I'm sorry to say that our time is running short, but, but Mary, I want to make sure that we have a chance to talk to you a little bit more about some of the things that you might want us to know about the Department of Homeland Security and um, ICE actions and um, the, you know, the, the work your agency does. Sure. I think, first of all, I don't work for Department of Labor, so I, I certainly don't dispute anything. I'm not in a position to do that. Um, I'm here to represent the men and women who swear an oath to enforce the law, to enforce the law as it's written, not as we might hope that it was written. We're a nation of laws. Um, we are a nation of due process and judges. And when judges issue an order of removal, we're not going to ignore it. I have agents sitting outside my office door who are literally rescuing people from trafficking situations, who are um, working every day to make our communities safer. Um, and I'm proud to represent them. Um, I am here to obviously um, represent an agency uh, that is in the news quite a bit. Um, but this, what I think is important to remember is the sort of, um, and, and you had asked me at one point my, my personal frustration. Mm -hmm. So here, here's where we go with Mary Hogan's frustrations. <laughs> it's the la-la-la, I'm not listening method of communication 
the I don't need to listen to you or talk to you or have a conversation with you because I know everything I need to know about the agency, about immigration enforcement, about um, what you do. And that's why nights like this are so important and why I so very much appreciate being um, invited because we have to have the difficult conversations. We have to be able to speak civilly and to exchange ideas so that when we do vote, we're voting in a way that our leaders know this is who we are, this is what we want, um, and this is, this is the system we're looking for. Um, immigration enforcement has been a topic of conversation for many, many years, but you can't create public policy through pretending people don't break the law. I represent proudly um, the men and women, the moms and dads, the brothers and sisters, the parents, the people who are in the same communities, go to the same churches as everybody here, the same grocery stores, and they're trying to do a job that, that they swore an oath to do. Um, and I think they should be able to do it without abuse, without threats, without um, um, eye rolls, that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean that if you uh, invite me again to come talk, to come listen, I'm gonna do my best to be here. It was quite Thank an you. effort to get us <laughs> to get this uh, scheduled tonight, and yeah. then, like I said, I was puzzled by the construction. But I will come out any time you ask um, to have these conversations because yeah. it is so crucial. And I think it's incredibly really, complex. I'd love to just pick up really briefly on this question of human trafficking because you know I heard that I hear this mentioned a lot in regard to um, immigration enforcement, and a number of comprehensive um, reports on the issue of human trafficking recently have expressed alarm that. Um, anti-immigrant sentiment and and sort of the the context that's whipping up fear and isolation makes it far less likely that victims of human trafficking will come forward out of fear that they will be seen themselves as the perpetrators rather than as victims. And so, you know, I think there are important ways in which our current policies are inadvertently promoting human um, trafficking by making it very difficult for people to reach their families, um, looking for alternative paths, and being very fearful and isolated um, mm -hmm. about coming forward and exposing their abuse, the abuse that they have suffered. And finally, with respect to my agency, as I said, it's anti-illegal immigration, not an anti-immigrant. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Gosh, thank you all. This is a hard conversation to have, but I agree that it's one we have to have and appreciate very much your coming, Mary. Um, and Robin, thank you so much. And thank you, Brom. Wish we had another hour to go, go on with this with you guys. It was great. So um, we're going to break now, and in a moment we'll have our next panel of guests. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our program on the politics and impact of immigration. In this segment, we're going to take a look at how media cover immigration issues, and we'll discuss public and local responses to the current immigration crackdown. Uh, so I'd like to introduce our guests. Just next to me is David Reif, director of the UI School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Thanks for being here, David. Thanks. <laughs> next to him is Jeff Cox. University of Iowa history professor and board member of the Hawkeye chapter of the Iowa ACLU. Thanks for being here, Jeff. And at the far end, we have Captain Bill Campbell from the Iowa City Police Department. Good to have you here, Bill. Thanks. Um, David, 
I'm hoping that uh, we can get a little perspective on the broad debate about immigration by looking at ways in which the media uh, tend to cover it. Um, as the head of the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, I don't suppose there's anybody better equipped than you to sort of help us sort through what we're hearing and what we're seeing. Um, how do you think immigration is being covered in today's media? Um, well, there's actually a, uh, quite a lot of academic research on that subject, uh, people going out and counting stories and, and following along. And there's been a real transition in the last 20 to 30 years in how the media cover immigration. Um, before we start, we should probably define our terms. Uh, we didn't have to do that um, <laughs> in the past, but we do now. When I'm talking about media, I'm talking really about professional journalism. I'm not talking about the um, cable shows. I'm not talking about online news sites. Mm -hmm. I'm really talking about uh, people who are in the industry as professional journalists. Um, in the 1970s and 1980s, you would see a very common frame was a business frame uh, for immigration. You know, uh, immigration as um, um, a, a part of uh, the local economy. Um, and as an equivalent of that, you'd see a lot of stories about uh, labor and immigration. Partly, I think, because there was a, a broader labor movement mm -hmm. uh, and unions were very important uh, in uh, public culture still and therefore were uh, ready, uh, ready and reliable sources for journalists. Mm -hmm. um, today, uh, we've seen almost a wholesale shift in the way in which media frame uh, immigration. Um, it tends to be one of two frames, and then a third is kind of creeping in. Mm -hmm. um, one frame is a public order frame. It's a very common way of framing uh, media, uh, immigration issues today about public safety, uh, people coming over the border illegally, um, what's happening to our communities with immigration, those sorts of issues. Um, a, a, a countervailing frame is a more humanitarian frame, um, talking about um, individual immigrants often are uh, personalized and dramatized in these kinds mm -hmm. of stories, following them as they make their way into uh, into the United States and setting up themselves in their communities. Um, there's one last little frame that's beginning to uh, make its way into the media coverage, and that's more of a race and culture frame, uh, where they talk about the different um, categories of people um, mm -hmm. who are coming into the country and how they're changing the racial composition of the communities mm -hmm. they go into. Um, it's a minor frame compared to the other two, um, but as you can imagine, these dominant frames tend to be driven partly by the news industry. Um, certainly the commercialization of news in the last 20 to 30 years has meant um, that uh, journalists look for stories they can dramatize, um, and uh, conflict is easy to dra uh, dramatize. Um, and so public order frames, humanitarian frames fit nicely into that um, need. Um, but partly also what's happening in our political envi environment, professional journalism is bolted onto um, uh, conventional politics and as conventional politics moves, you're going to see uh, the frames and news coverage move. So that's kind of generally an overview of how the frames have changed in the last 20 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think many people would say that we're in sort of an unconventional time in terms of politics just now. And if we were to take that point of view, um, uh, you did mention that you're you're not specifically referring to cable news and and certainly not what happens on social media, but but there is. Um, there is um, so much news on a daily basis, it seems, these days. The news yep. is kind of churning out, whether from the central, um, from the administration or yep. from anti-administration activists. Yep. Um, what's the role of responsible journalists to sort of sort through all of this and try to give us a picture that's a seasoned, um, well, honest picture? Yeah, that's a, so that's a question that professional journalists ask. Unfortunately for them, and perhaps for the larger public, 
Um, journalists have really lost their ability to gatekeep information in the public square. Um, they once served as the primary conduits of information in public life, and that's no longer true. They're one of a, a series of voices um, in public life and um, in a digital world. There are lots of producers of information and consumers of information as well. So it's a more chaotic environment, and journalists really, even if they could answer that question, um, they, uh, their answer wouldn't necessarily uh, be impressed upon the public anyway. Yeah. Uh, we just live in a much more fragmented media landscape. So what do we do um, when um, some call mainstream media enemies of the people? Uh, how, how does one combat that? Well, unfortunately, um, the way in which people process information psychologically is connecting to a new digital system that allows them to consume information based upon their predilections. Um, generally speaking, psychologically speaking, we prefer information that confirms our pre-existing views. We tend to gravitate to information um, that confirms those views. Um, the digital space gives us an opportunity to um, limit ourselves to information that confirms their views. And there's a lots of public actors and political actors out there who are more than happy to produce information that looks like news and feels like news. It's just mm -hmm. simply not journalism um, and are able to push that out to their particular audiences. And it creates filter bubbles in the public square um, that are part of the polarization and partisanship of the current political environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thanks for getting us started. Um, Jeff, I'd like to go to you next and, um, okay. uh, and talk to you um, in, with both of your hats on, maybe, the uh, history professor hat and also um, someone who's um, a part of the ACLU. Um, uh, you believe in the goals and values of the ACLU. And um, to get back to the uh, immigration topic directly, um, the ACLU has been right at the forefront of uh, defending immigrant rights, um, trying to help people at the border who are in a lot of trouble right now, helping reunite children and so on and so forth. And I know that the ACLU has also been fighting cases here in Iowa. Um, give us all a little understanding of why this matters. Right. Well, I, I don't speak for the ACLU. I'm just on the local board. I was just talking to Bill Campbell, our local chapter for the first time ever, we met with the police chief of Iowa City, Jody Matherly, and had a very, uh, very fruitful discussion. We, we were about, this was about racism rather than immigration. Uh, but he said something that I thought was very important in our meeting. He said there are things that uh, police and prosecutors do that are lawful but awful. Hmm. They're lawful but awful. Hmm. And, uh, and I was very pleased that he recognized that. We, uh, uh, you know, in, in the, the ACLU has been at the forefront, as you mentioned, in defending the children mm -hmm. separated yeah. from whoever brought them here uh, at the border. And, uh, you know, the New York Times, I teach a course in the New York Times, history through the New York Times. <laughs> and uh, the New York Times is good on some things, just terrible on others. But the, if you saw the front page today, there was a picture of a two-year-old girl. Uh, on the front page, who was in court in New York. And, you know, she was sitting there, and the immigration judge, who dealt with something like 30 or 40 cases the same day, came in, sat down, looked at her, and said, Oh, she's two years old. And the Homeland Security agent who was there wouldn't look at her. And I was thinking, as I heard people talking, about how comforting it would be for her to tell her, oh, you're under civil, not criminal. <laughs> I mean, you know, don't worry. There are 17 different agencies at work here. She's incarcerated. 
She's incarcerated. And the, the ACLU has been at the front lines on the border in uh, defending the, it appears now, 13,000 children who are being put in camps uh, on the borders. And I, I really feel obliged to respond to two things that Mary Hogan said. Or it's one that is, we're just enforcing the law. Reach for your billfold when you hear somebody say that. I mean, the law is not fixed and settled. You know, immigrants have inferior rights to full citizens, but they don't have no rights. They have rights under the Constitution. They have statutory rights. They have rights under international law when it comes to asylum. And there is a very large amount of discretion in the people who uh, enforce these laws. Uh, this is the case of asylum seekers. Uh, the, it's true, as Mary Hogan said, that the people who crossed the border were uh, breaking the law by crossing the border with their children. That's true. But they're, they're, in the past, they've often been treated under asylum seeker regulations rather than charged with criminal offenses. That, that is a matter of discretion. And it's the same thing with the enforcement, whatever you want to call it, at Mount Pleasant. There are 11 million undocumented workers in the United States. You know, to pick out 30 of them, somebody made a decision that we're going to pick out this place at Mount Pleasant and arrest them. And of course, this is political. It's to teach them a lesson. But, you know, this is not a lesson that's going to eliminate the 11 million undocumented workers. It's only going to terrorize them and their children and break up families. And, uh, and th there, there are large numbers of people who benefit from the fact that we have undocumented workers in this country. It's Iowa Ag. You know, mm -hmm. most of these people have been invited here by employers to and are, are doing nothing more than being responsible people by trying to make themselves a living and take care of their families. There is no way 11 million people are going to be uh, deported. So what we've got is a constant state of, of uh, a kind of racist aggression by the government against selected groups of people that we never know exactly why they were picked out this way or why they were picked out that way. Uh, one of the biggest problems that we face in the ACLU is uh, all Bill Clinton's fault. It's the, it's the 96 Immigration Act, which made it legal to deport people for minor offenses. Uh, uh, Barack Obama was known as the deporter-in-chief for a good reason, because in his first term in office, he deported three million undocumented workers, three million, almost each one of those uh, uh, almost each one of those represents a family that has been broken up, disrupted, orphans created, and so forth. He thought that if he showed that it was a hard line on immigration, the Republicans would come around and cooperate with him. Well, that didn't work too well. Uh, so I, I think we, 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 you know, all we can do in the ACLU is fight a kind of hard line defense on individual cases and collective cases. Uh, we, we got the uh, federal courts to declare the uh, separation of children from asylum seekers who had broken the law um, um, against the law. I mean, it's not just immigrants who break the law. It's the government uh, in their enforcement of it. And so, you know, the, I, the ACLU is fighting a 
kind of rear guard action uh, against a, a, a situation which is creating a kind of horror show for asylum seekers, for children, uh, for undocumented workers in this country. And at some point, we are simply going to have to do what Ronald Reagan honorably did, which was grant uh, amnesty to the people who've been here and who haven't broken any important laws. That's the only way we're going to end this situation. Otherwise, it's just going to go on forever. Well, Bill, let's go to you. you um, Bill, yeah. So, so I'm going to bring a different spin to this. I'm going to start off by telling you a little bit of a story. So um, you've probably all followed immigration issues, or you wouldn't be here tonight. And you probably have followed what's going on locally. Um, and so if you recall back in early 2017, there was a resolution that the council passed. And, and during the resolution basically affirmed what it was that the city wanted to represent and so forth within its law enforcement in town. And it was, it was entitled re, uh, Resolution Reaffirming the Public Safety Function of Local Law Enforcement. And so if you jump back a couple months uh, before that, I was approached by the city manager. At the time, I was the interim chief. And, um, he asked me, he said, so tell me, Bill, as we're putting this together, what do you guys do with, what, what's your interaction with ICE? What do you do surrounding immigration? What, what kind of stuff are you involved in? And um, now to date myself just a tad, um, I've been with the department for 28 years. I've worked in just about every position the department has. And I started to kind of go back through and go, okay, let's see if I can't give a good answer to this question. So let me think of the experiences I have with ICE, with customs, with immigration. And I still to this day can't give you one. Because frankly, local law enforcement in this community doesn't get involved with ICE really very much. And I can't say I've never talked with somebody from ICE, but I can't think of a time when someone from ICE has been called in by us to do something. So my, my experience in this is, is very much one of the non-experience. To be, to be honest with you about what I saw. So uh, kind of fast forwarding to something, and, and since then you've seen a number of policies, you've seen some laws passed by the, by the state legislature that required certain things of local law enforcement, required certain things of local governments as far as things they couldn't do, couldn't limit what the police could do to, as far as interacting with, with customs and with ICE. Um, but ultimately, uh, I think it gets summed up very succinctly in one of our, our, one of our guidelines. And I'll just read right from it. It says, the primary function of the department, and speaking about our department here, is to protect public safety for the benefit of all persons who reside in and visit the community. The enforcement of immigration law is the function of the federal government and currently resides with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, at the Homeland Security level. Um, so I, I bring an interesting message to you on this, and, and it's one that really says, by and large, um, we don't get asked by ICE to do much. Um, I can't say it never happens. If I were to come up here and tell you that, you'd go, well, really? You've never really talked to, to customers about anything? That's not true, but we don't get really asked to do anything. So when it came down to the resolution and what we'll use for resources, that kind of thing, to be involved in immigration enforcement, it was pretty simple. This policy, this resolution, those things don't change what we do very much. Now, just one caveat to it, and I know you have some follow-up questions to this. So the question comes up then, what about, what if ICE were to call and were to ask for your help? Um, certainly we, and I'll go back to something Mary said, and that is we don't, we're not the people who are going to make policy. The police are not going to make policy. They're not going to make the law. We are required by law to 
to uphold the law. So if I get called by someone from the FBI or the IRS or from ICE, and they're going to make a request to us, we're going to filter that through the same way we'd filter any other request to determine what the need was and how it fits inside this mission. Again, this mission to protect public safety and so forth. Um, having said that, we can play a lot of what ifs if we choose to, but it's really not a question we, we get asked. It's not, it's not something we get asked. So. Wow, wow. Um, to take this to, to sort of another level related to community safety. Mm -hmm. um, certainly there are people living in our community who have some concerns about their status, who right. have concerns about a family member who may not be legally right. in the country. I understand that you and the chief and others in the department meet periodically with people who have those concerns. Can you share some of the concerns yeah. and some of the assurances you could give? Yeah, and I think that that's, that's probably one of the most unfortunate things that comes out of this is that and, and, and it's something that, on a personal level, as a, as a police officer, but also as just someone who's interacted with people that are from other communities who may or may not have status uh, to, to be in the country, um, we see a, an anxiety. You know, should I come forward to report a crime? Should I come forward to be a witness? Um, I think there's times where we have, have lots of good witnesses to crimes and more violent crimes, and they don't come forward because they're concerned about what's going to happen with that information. You know, the, the reassurance that we bring is that we, we're not tasked, again, we go back to this primary mission, we're not tasked to doing, we're not tasked to be doing immigration enforcement. Um, having said that, and then this is the one that's challenging, I think, for us. If I, obviously the police department can't control what happens with information when someone, I mean, let's play out a situation. You have a court case. Someone is a witness in court. Obviously, that information becomes a public thing, and then where does that go to? Where does that information go? And there's a lot of anxiety about that. I can tell you that it's not our go-to to run and take information from a criminal case and provide it to immigration officials. That's not, that's not what we're going to do with information. There's some pretty specific information within our guidelines that prevents that. That's not what we're doing with that information. Um, but that's a tough one because mm -hmm. ultimately, if I show up and I'm wearing a police uniform, uh, what is my job there? Why am I there? If I'm, involving, if I'm involved in a criminal investigation and there ends up being a crime that gets investigated, what if that crime involves something with immigration and then I'm around and with it? Um, certainly easier to just stay away from the police than to engage them right. if there's that risk. I, I, I think that we try to send that message, as the chief would say, it's really about how we send that message every day. It's not about how we interact on whether we pass this resolution or not. It's what are the police really doing when they're out there talking to us? How are they treating us? What kind of confidence can I have with them? So we really try to instill that with the officers that, you know what, it's important that people trust you. It's important that, I mean, that's about solving crime. I think the chief, and, and I, I should have the stat in front of me, but I think the chief has said since, the, since this resolution's passed, I think violent crime in Iowa City has dropped by 11%. Mm -hmm. um, does that have anything to do with the council? I'm sure it does. I would say <laughs> it has everything to do with the council. Mm -hmm. But um, I think ultimately the goal is to have a community that trusts its police and recognize, recognizes, at least for that group of people, that's not what our job is. That's not what our mission is. That's not why we're here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th thank you for explaining that. Mm -hmm. um, and clearly, those, those kinds of city resolutions vary, right? Mm -hmm. you, you could be in a very different city, maybe in a different part of the country, with a much um, um, 
with a police force that was much more anxious mm -hmm. to engage with mm -hmm. um, enforcement of immigration right. violations. And, uh, and so then on a national level, I guess this is where the ACLU is again, um, and, and other organizations that are concerned with the rights of immigrants and so on, well, get involved. Uh, yeah, I'll yeah. just say one thing. I mean, the person to ask this question to is Lonnie Pokrovic, I think not mm -hmm. you, but most of the ACLU uh, cases on so-called sanctuary cities, which don't really exist, they're just some who've, who've uh, passed certain kinds of resolutions mm -hmm. and right. others, is whether ICE requests to the jail to hold people longer than the time that they're legally obliged to hold them uh, and I, and I, beyond beyond the time they're legally obliged to hold them before charging them, and I think and that's Lonnie's been a flashpoint. I mean, some yeah. some some cities have done this, others have refused, others have been threatened with having their federal aid cut off. Oakland, I think. Uh, do you know anything about that? I do. I do believe. I believe the sheriff came out with a public statement that said that he would not. He do wouldn't that. do it. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that, that's correct. He was fairly pass, critical yeah. of. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah, yeah, huh. Although I don't believe the Board of Supervisors passed a resolution, I believe that the sheriff made a statement. And I think that's also found, you can find that online pretty well, easily. Well, he's in yeah. charge of the jail. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. And I, and I think he also commented that that, again, is not something that he gets, he doesn't get requests from ICE very often. Right. It doesn't come up very often. Huh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, David, when, when you hear about these kinds of things, does it trigger any thoughts in terms of what you've seen in uh, reporting? Well, um, you know, one of the, the, there's lots of different um, consequences of the disruption of journalism, but certainly one of the most significant is the demise of um, local news and local yeah. newspapers. Any of you who get the Iowa Press Citizen, you can see that in your, on a daily basis. It's... Um, it's just not the paper that it once was. Um, and e most local newspapers are not that anymore. Um, strangely enough, what that's meant is that most local people um, consume mostly national news. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, strangely enough, it used to be said that all politics was local. And now all local politics is national yeah. mm -hmm. um, because local people are reading local actions through the national discourse. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the demise of the local news is part of the increase of partisanship and polarization. It's, it's easier to come together to figure out how to fix a specific issue we all together share here. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But when there's no conversation about that in the local news, and what we have is what's on cable news. Um, it makes it, it makes for a strange local discourse. It becomes mm -hmm. refracted through the national conversation, um, and that's part of the acceleration mm -hmm. of partisanship and polarization today. Yeah, yeah. Any concluding thoughts? Any of you want to want to give? Is there, is no, there I just want to second that. The, the decline of the press citizen. I mean, there's some, <laughs> I mean, the Gazette has actually gotten better. It really has. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Vanessa Miller does a great job on yeah. covering the university. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you want to read a really good uh, newspaper, I recommend the Tipton Conservative. Yeah. It's a weekly <laughs> published on the county That's seat right. of Cedar County. Yeah. They'll print any letter anybody sends them on any topic. Yeah. And so you have the, the weekly cranks in there. But, but you have a real debate going on. It's a better newspaper, a weekly, than the Press Citizen now. It's just yeah. such a shame. Yeah. <laughs> such a shame. <laughs> um, 
And, and um, do you feel that the, the community is really pretty solidly behind the kinds of, of uh, approaches you've taken here in the police department? Sorry, what, oh, I'm sorry, I was talking to Bill. Bill yeah, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, definitely. And I, and I think, and, and as, as Jeff has said, uh, Chief Matherly's done a fantastic job yes, of, of really ramping up those aspects of things. I mm -hmm. think we're out there more than we were. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we have a supportive council um, surrounding those things too. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I do believe that. And I think that, again, we can always do things better. And, and there's always, I mean, um, I, 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 I jokingly say that um, police officers oftentimes, are, they're like the playground monitor, except adults don't like to be told that they're not supposed to run. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that's a, t it's a tough role. There'll always be criticism and review of what we do. And, that's, and we, we expect that. Um, but I think we continually do things better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not everything is getting worse. Yeah, <laughs> that's, right. that's a good way to end this segment, I think. So, um, so thank you, David Reif and Jeff Cox and Bill Campbell for being here. Really appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs>
even now he's speaking to you. If I speak that on my language, I would say it beautifully, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I still I struggle in, you know, on the language and everything sometimes. But just, just to show you that this is not an easy thing when I arrive here. It was really difficult for me to find job, to resettle, to understand the language, to do a lot of things. It was totally, you know, difficult. Did you uh, come here to meet someone from your family, or did you come requesting asylum? No, actually, I came because, you know, uh, in Sudan, my dad passed away when I was third grade. We are four sisters and two brothers. We have, uh, our life was really, really hard growing up. We suffered too much since my mom, she doesn't have enough education. And I was just thinking about something. I need to, to improve our life. I always, you know, like to improve things when they are not going in the right direction <laughs> since I was little. That's why the, the, the first thing was I was trying to help my mother, and she always say education is solution. I don't have enough education. That's why I'm not finding a good job. And she encouraged us to educate, you know, like really study hard so we can graduate. I did graduate from civil engineering <laughs> from my country. And I, I thought, as soon as I get my certificate, I will find a good job and build a better life for my family in Sudan. But that wasn't the reality because, you know, the government was corrupted. If you don't know somebody in, like, some organization or companies, you cannot even find a job. I just hold my certificate, looking for a job, couldn't find anything. That's why I just decided to get out of the country. I started hearing about the, you know, immigration lotteries, and I applied many times with all logs. And finally, I went to Egypt, and I get a visa to come to the United States. And I, I, I came here really looking for that better life, mm -hmm. which I'm still fighting for it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you're married now, and you have children? I, yeah, I met my husband. You know, after like uh, five years in Virginia, I met my husband, who is asylee. He's from Sudan, but he came and uh, he re came and seek asylum, and he they get his asylum, and uh, we met, and I guess thought he's a good guy, still good guy, <laughs> and uh, we got married, and we have five children in Virginia. Uh, in Virginia, I start like working after 15. First, I start working after 15 days. I work in McDonald's uh, because you know, even though I have civil engineering degree, mm -hmm. but it is a new country for me. Mm -hmm. I have to start all over. That's why I start by working in McDonald's. I start, and pay, they pay me five twenty-five. That's important, I have to lay it out, because that was 1997. <laughs> the minimum wage was five twenty-five, And now the minimum wage is seven twenty-five. Mm -hmm. That's not good. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yes, uh, that's what the minimum wage. I was working hard, sending money back home. I built a beautiful house for my family back home. And I start sending money also for my, my brother and sister so they can go to school and start improving our life over there. I was working two jobs in two McDonald's. I just had you know, one like from 7 o'clock to 3 o'clock, and the other one is from 4 o'clock to close. I have just to change the, 
you know, my shirt very quick at the bathroom because one of them was franchise, one of them like okay, McDonald's, they, they have different <laughs> shirt. And, you know, just go to the other one. I remember I stayed like really long time on my feet. Even sometimes I get blustered when I go home. It is really was tough for me because I have to pay my rent in Virginia. I have to send the rent for my family back home and all the money. They, they depend fully on my salary here in the United States. And that's what I've been doing. But after, uh, you know, after I done everything for my family, after that I met my husband in Virginia. And I really had a tough time in Virginia resettling things is new country for me, as I told you. But after I resettled, I started learning everything quickly, and I become advocate for the new people who come. I was like start like advocate for them, try to make them resettle, try to like uh, help them navigate through the system. When I hear he like I become very famous in Virginia by helping <laughs> newcomer. <laughs> you know, and my, my cell phone was a public phone, not a private phone. <laughs> Everybody will give it to anyone. So they call me, they can call me at night time, no problem. I will pick up the phone because I think that it is important to help the new people navigate. You, you will come like really lost, scared, especially if you have children. I, when I came, I, I, I came by myself. But when you have children, it will be really, you know, difficult for you. I will take my, uh, you know, old family try to register their kids to school, apply for certain benefit, figure out the place they can you know, stay and rent, and try to help them find a job. I also like enroll them in, in English as a second language classes and try to help them navigate. I, I was being doing this for a long time in Virginia, just advocating for the you know, immigrants, actually, because at that time, I, I don't have any interaction with American people outside my workplace. You know, but I just find them there, talk to them while I'm work. I don't have any another interaction or friend or anything. Until I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I met my husband. I have five children, uh, which is one girl, four boys. I have all of them in Virginia. And finally, I decide, you know, I need to work professionally like where I can earn more money and spend less time in work, like eight hours a day, enough, and have more time to stay with my children. And also the rent was very expensive in Virginia. And we, I have five children, we live in two bedroom apartment, we're paying 1750. Mm -hmm. And this is was really ridiculous. I, I work hard, my husband work hard, so we can navigate and like try to make ends meet. But I decided to come and study, and I was Googling some kind of like community college where I will find a place to find like less rent at the same time to study. And I just come across Iowa, <laughs> Kirkwood Community College, <laughs> and looking like, what, I'm going to study there? And I was looking, looking, and I found something called EEG, which is Electro-Neurodiagnostic Technology. You measure the brain with EEG if you heard about it, for the people who have epilepsy or head trauma or those kind of things. And I said, oh, I love that. You know, even though like I'm engineering, I was dealing, I supposed to deal with like cement and aggregate <laughs> and all these kind of things. But you know, this is what make me deal with the brain. And I always think if I focus on something, I will do it. That's why I said, oh, I'm gonna do that. And I just decided to come to Iowa to Kirkwood Community College to study EEG. And I promised all my friends in Virginia, 
because they was really sad that I'm leaving Virginia. I said, two years, I would be back. Two years only to finish that associate degree in Kirkwood Community College and come back. And here I am. I never <laughs> went there. But do you want me to tell the story in, in Iowa? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. And then we'll go to Chewy and we'll hear his story too. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I came to Iowa, really, okay, I don't sound like maybe he's going for it. Like, mm. yeah, it's okay. Anyway, uh, it's good to ask. Uh, you know, when I came to Iowa, as I told you, in Virginia, I was very passionate about helping people and advocate for them. But I was limited my help to the immigrants, people, because I thought they are the people who needed help. And you know, maybe the American can help me navigate so I can help other people to navigate. But you know, during that time when my, my daughter started going to the head store, this is the first time I started going and engaging with the school. And I've been going there just to volunteer because they told me there is a volunteer opportunity for parents to come. And they've been going there. They started seeing me coming a lot. They said, what about to join the Head Start Policy Council? I said, why not? But I don't know what that is. You're going to tell me about it. And I just join it and understand what it is. And I find out, oh, as a parent, we can have input in how the money of the Head Start could be spent. Oh, that's, isn't that good? Like, we have power, and as immigrant, I'm going to have that power, and I cannot imagine it. And I always ask, are you sure we can say no and we can say yes? Not the administration. They said, yeah, we are having the power to do everything. <laughs> One of the people who was in the policy council, she said, hey, Mazahir, you want to learn more about this? There is something called Parent Leadership Institute of Alexandria, Virginia. Why don't join those people? This institute will educate people. Uh, like they trying to make, make the parent leader of the community, and they will teach you about the system, how the government work from like city level, state, county, everything. And I, was, I have no idea there is something called the mayor. I have no idea there is something called city council or even board of supervisor. Because that's my, like really, the, the last thing on my agenda when I came to this country, even I did not put it on the agenda. I don't want to know how those kind of things. I have many other important issues I was focusing on. Anyway, we, I, I joined the Parent Leadership Institute of Alexandria. I become really familiar with the laws and how everything start working. They took us to the capital of uh, Virginia, Richmond, and we saw people are passing bills and yeah, we, I didn't understand it at that time really very well, but I was like seeing what's going on. At least I start having an idea and I become leader. During that program, you have to graduate with a project. You have to focus on one project that you can improve the community or just solve a problem or issues in the community. At that time, I, I thought that, you know, I find out the Head Start bus for the, for the kids has been cut due to budget. And I find out a lot better, which is having kids say, I don't see them anymore coming. When I asked, they told me they dropped because they don't have a mean of transportation to take their kids to the Head Start. But I said, oh, let me ask my mentor to say if that's a good thing to solve. He said, yeah, that will be it. And we, he started helping me how to do a campaign around this. And he told me, he gave me the tools, and I go, did, the first thing I did is a survey 
to see how many kids has been dropped. And I find 11 kids has been dropped because of that. And I took all this and I started like proposing something. Who can solve the problem? We brought, you know, they, they told me I have to go and meet the mayor and ask the city to solve the problem. And I went there for the first time to see the mayor, and the mayor invited uh, for me like all the school, like the superintendent, uh, the transportation directors, everyone. And he said, "Here is Ms. Zahir. She's looking for a solution, and you are here for the, from the city. Tell me how you can help this." And they, he told me, "And um, by the way, if we cannot find help, what are you gonna do?" I said, I'm going to go to the media and make it public issues. <laughs> and he said, no, don't do that now. <laughs> Let us solve the problem. And we did. We really you know, accomplished. We had the bus pack running. And this is the first time I can say I become really engaged in like, uh, as American citizen and even make king. I was very <laughs> happy I did that king. And I still have that passionate. And when I came to Iowa, I met with the people who was really passionate about social justice. When they just by accident, I was at Coralville Public Library with my youngest one because he doesn't have a school. And we was hanging at the library while I see like people coming in and all of them, they went down stairs to the, you know, and I said, oh, there is some people look at like, like me, they wearing a scarf and they going down. Let me go and see what's going on down the stair. And I went there, I asked somebody, is this public? He said, yes, it is public. And I went there, I found a lot of people from different backgrounds. And guess what? That was the first meeting for the Center for Worker Justice. Yeah. It was called Immigrant Voice Project at that time. And they having their first meeting. And I just like, they talking a lot, a lot about uh, good things. They talking about all the issues that I love. I like it. And I said, oh, those my people. You know, just the God sent it to me and to the library so I can join this. And I just started like, talking to them, I put my name for the next meeting, and that's how I engage with the Center for Worker Justice. Later I become a founder, Immigrant Voice Project is the founder of the Center for Worker Justice. So I become one of the founder of the Center for Worker Justice. Uh, you know, I, if you don't know, we, we did a lot of good stuff in this community. But most of you, you know, but I like to brag about it. <laughs> we, you know, all the time, wherever I go, we raise the minimum wage to 1010, as you know, in Johnson County, uh, where, you know, the Des Moines people came and they said, you cannot, you know, they took the right of the county from that. But, you know, I said, we don't care about Des Moines people. They are not the, the Johnson County, you know, residents. They don't know anything. That's why we start, like, going to the business door to door and ask them to you know, keep paying the minimum wage of Johnson County, which is 1010, because they're still operating. No one went out of business. That's why we've been telling them that. That's one of the victories we have. We recover almost now, today, 70,000 of wage theft. Wage theft, as Robert mentioned early, like just employee doesn't want to pay people who done the work for them. And, you know, uh, I just, in fact, recovered two wake theft last week. One of them is 600, and the other one is 400, almost 1,000 just last week. And this is happening in this community. We really improved the relationship between minority and, uh, you know, local enforcement here. As you said, just Captain Campbell was talking about, 
you know, the, 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 the relations between minority, how they help. We are the one who calling Captain Campbell and his, uh, you know, the, all the local informers to come and talk to the immigrants so they can feel safe in this community. Mm -hmm. I guess those all the things that we really done, and uh, after that I just decided also by knowing, uh, you know, I guess I can stop here and you yeah. ask me later. <laughs> yeah, no, ah, no sorry. That's, you know, that's, I think no, that's that, good. You know, my story is not you know, enough like only half an hour. I think I need three hours. I, I, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> well, so, just, yeah, give him gas no, and let him you. maybe you can okay. ask us Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, Chewie, it's such a pleasure to have you here too. So, so you, your family came here. Um, you know, your mother apparently came from Mexico. Your father came from Mexico. Met in Muscatine got married and tell us what happened uh, since then yeah so I think it's important and first of all thank you everybody for for sticking around and thank you Joan for inviting sure. Marza here and I um, something before I get into it this is me being a little sassy um, it's really interesting to see the kind of the dichotomy get placed and kind of like the the talking heads and everybody kind of lean into that and then when it comes to and I know it's late too but when it comes to actually having us talk and, and kind Thank of like, you. yeah, and, and get into like the complexities of who we are as people, I think people sort of kind of lose interest, which I think is really interesting to point out. And um, Matahir, when you speak, you speak like I speak, we're both storytellers. And you kind of get into the nuance of, of communication. We don't, we don't talk in acronyms, right? And I think that's really important to think about when we're actually conversating and having these stories. Um, so before I get into more of that, uh, <laughs> so my parents are both from uh, border towns in Mexico. And they both, um, they didn't know each other, and they both moved and um, came to Iowa, immigrated to Iowa, and ended up going to a meat processing plant in Muscatine, and got married in Muscatine, and then uh, West, uh, it was Lewis Rich at the time in West Liberty, Iowa, which is about 20 minutes away. Um, and yeah, I was born here in Iowa City and grew up in West Liberty. And another thing to kind of uh, note too is like I kind of have like imposter syndrome right now I feel like I'm like what am I talking about but it, for me <laughs> for me it, it's almost it's really important for me to to and I think Joan you recognize this like I don't have the answers and I think it's important to have people on a platform like this who don't have the answers instead I'm burdened with the questions and right now I just have to make those questions manifested for you um, and for you Joan and and so Something that my dad talked about, um, he's from uh, Ojinaga, which is in uh, the Mexican state of Chihuahua, which is the northern, northern border state. And he said that when he was growing up, there was posters and flyers all throughout Ojinaga for jobs in Iowa. Um, and you know what the language said to him was, come to Iowa and work, we won't check papers. Oh. And he said to me, if you don't think that's happening to this day, then you're fooling oh. yourself. Oh. And I think there's tons of, of questions that happen when you start to think about that. Um, and some, um, and I'm just going to pose them as rhetorical yeah. questions. It's like, how many people here know about West Liberty? Mm -hmm. How many people know about here that like, West Liberty was the first majority Hispanic town mm -hmm. in Iowa? Mm -hmm. um, and another rhetorical question is, like, how many undocumented people do you know personally? Mm -hmm. 
And something that I say is, if you know somebody here in Iowa who looks like me, who has brown skin, who's Mexican um, or Central American, you, you're about two degrees removed from somebody who knows an undocumented person. And whether or not we're talking semantics and whether or not we're talking about breaking the law or not, we're talking about families, we're talking about all these complicated mm -hmm. questions that arise when this sort of political um, burden gets placed on, on us. Um, so my parents had um, three kids. My brother, um, I have an older brother who's 10 years older than me, uh, older sister, five and me, five years older than me and myself. And we grew up, and I think an interesting thing that happened is growing up in Iowa, um, and I, I wrote a story about this, who, uh, Joan, you read and, yeah, and you kind of talked about fantastic. it. Um, it's a story about work and I kind of talk about all the different experiences I've had with, with my identity and work here in Iowa. And I say, I started off with saying, um, let me tell you about my relationship with work. Cause if you're Mexican in America, you have a relationship with work and it's complicated. Um, when people look at me when I'm working, um, they see the accent I have, or they see the accent I don't have. Mm -hmm. They see how tan and dark I get when I'm working in the summer and roofing. Um, that's really interesting. One of the first guests you talked about when he talked about the, the immigration, the, the checks is like your complexion. Yeah. And I think that's really, that's, that's the, one of the biggest, most complicated questions that happen when you talk to people of color, marginalized people or people, immigrants here. You're talking about complexion and how when we worked in the summer, people would treat us differently when we saw how dark we got. I had a, a and Mazier, I went to Kirkwood as well. So that's funny, I went to Kirkwood and I had my Kirkwood ID. And I had a Kirkwood ID where I was like 19. And by the end of, it was at the end of the summer because it was in the fall. So I have this picture of me and this Kirkwood ID where I'm tanned and I had a buzz cut. And I kept it for a long time because I would show it to people. And my ID now is like me, picture me with an ID right now, picture. So I show them that one and then I show them the Kirkwood and people would have like a visceral reaction. And I, I can't tell you how many times people said like, you look like you went to prison. And I think right there, it shows you like how much of a complicated kind of like, like you have this idea of how dark you are, your yeah. complexion. And I think that like it vibrates mm -hmm. when you're a person of color and you're in this kind of paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chewy has written an amazing book, and he shared one of the chapters with me um, as we were early on planning this program, and, and it was about this story of work and some of the people who were related to you, who were involved in summer roofing and so on and so forth. And, and uh, you know, you, you just talked about how whatever you were doing with your own personal life, maybe at that point you were taking courses in the junior college, I don't know, but people would drive by in the neighborhood where you were putting a roof on a house, and you said, so uh, <laughs> so it goes like this. So when we're on the, the roof of a house, see, and then here's the thing, so to give you guys a lot of context, because I think it, it, it's, it's like Mazahir and I, we, we have lots of context that we need to, to lay out. Um, for me, growing up in Iowa, I, I know about, I can understand about 80% of Spanish. I say I have this 80%, 20% kind of like formula that I tell people. Um, I, can, I can understand about 80% of what my parents or people are saying. I can speak about 20 cent proficiency, whatever that means. Basically, if you were to say, like, are you, a, a, like, are you fluent in Spanish? I say, no. And I think that gets really, and the thing with my family is, and it happens with a lot of family of immigrants, in, in our family, it's like you can actually go like, oh, yeah, my, my nephew speaks Spanish. His brother 
kind of just it didn't hit his ear and he doesn't speak Spanish. Um, his sister um, is the most Mexican out of all of us, so she for sure speaks Spanish. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we ask of ourselves. How Mexican are you really? Mm -hmm. And in the story, I talk about how I ended up roofing with my brother for a summer because my brother is an amazing roofer and I'm not. <laughs> but he, I wanted, I needed some money for the summer. And so it was my brother and we kind of amassed this like team of misfits. So it was like my cousins and my brother and some other people. And we ended up getting some undocumented workers working with us too. And I mean, if you work construction, you work roofing, it's all, you know, it's unregulated and that can happen. And it was all this like, so I was working with this guy who was undocumented, who couldn't speak any Spanish at all. And here's me who looks like I could be his son who can't speak any Spanish and we communicate through my brother who can speak um, and my dad and everything over there. All these like kind of this really culturally textured, nuanced kind of really ecosystem that's like funky, right? And to anybody driving by, and this might be just my own personal bias, but to anybody driving by, we're Mexicans on a roof. Mm -hmm. And so that's a rhetorical, rhetorical question I have for people. Like when you're driving by and you see mm -hmm. like a group of Mexicans, what do you feel? Mm -hmm. How do you think? What do you think when you're seeing them working? Is, can, you see, can you see the nuance in there? Um, a thing that happened just today that's kind of interesting is my name, Chewy. Uh, C-H-U-Y, pronounced Chewy, but if you say Chewy. Um, and so many people go to me uh, from here in our city and they're like, that's such a crazy name. Is it Star Wars? That's the one thing I get. Is it Star oh. Wars, Chewbacca? Um, like, wow, that's such a unique name. His, Jesus, Jesus, Chewy, um, is one of the most common names in the world. In West Liberty, I know about six Chewies. There is actually somebody, there is a student uh, at the University of Iowa who her, his TA was accidentally sending me emails all semester, this semester, because his name is Jesus Chewy. I won't say his last name, but she, I think in her head, she's like, there's no way, there's no way at all that there's another Chewy. I was like, no, he's one of seven other Chewies in West Liberty. <laughs> so that's another, that's, so the, I mean, for that, the question right there is like, what is our perceptions of what's, you know, normal or not? What's our perceptions of, of what's, um, you know, we're talking about like um, ethnocentrism. Yeah. And we're talking about like how do we perceive others if we are like ignorant to these mm -hmm. cultures. And the other thing I asked you before, but like who knows West Liberty? Who knows about this majority Hispanic town that's only 20 miles away that if you drive down their downtown, it looks like little Mexico. Um, my tia has a restaurant there and it's amazing. So if yeah. you guys should go, <laughs> I'll do one plug. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, and just one one more thing. It really struck me so um, hard when you recounted another incident that happened. You work in a professional role at Hampshire Auditorium. It's a wonderful position. You're involved in community engagement, mm -hmm. reaching out to schools and so on. A really responsible, wonderful, exciting job. And your parents came to Iowa City at one point and wanted to see you in the new Hampshire Auditorium. Yeah. But so here's how it goes. So. Um, through this roofing thing that happened with my brother, it ended up, and I talk about it in the story, um, it ended up being this entire saga of this summer of us, kind of the ramifications of what I consider like systemic racism. And it, and it just like, it fell apart. And I ended up going to Kirkwood um, and getting my associate's degree. And then I went to the University of Iowa for dance. So I did my undergrad in, in dance. And then right when I graduated, I got a knee injury and 
you know, I, I always say I had really big plans and an impending knee injury that dashed said plans. And I ended up working at a day center for uh, individuals with special needs for about 10 years. And from there, I saw an opening for Hancher for community engagement. So basically what we did at the day center was try to figure out creative ways to get these individuals out into the community in real ways. So it translated really, really well to, to, to Hancher. That is all to say I've kind of been, you know, had lots of different hats in the community and and was really, really excited, and it felt really, it felt like a huge step up to be working at Hancher, because um, the the kind of elephant in the room, dirty secret with day centers is like there's it's so hard, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of money, mm-hmm. and that's like uh, I think everybody has to come to a point where they're like have to make a decision where they're gonna mm-hmm. if they're gonna sacrifice for this or if they mm-hmm. you know if you have to take a left. And so I jumped at the opportunity for Hancher. And one of the first weeks I got the job, when I got, I, when I got in is when it opened, right, the new building. And so my parents were going to come see him. And as I said right here, our, our communication is like they speak in Spanish, I talk in English. I talk, and I talk in Spanish, which is pretty much just a couple of, it's pretty much English with a few Spanglish, like Perros and Gomos in there. Um, so we were trying to like conversate and, and we're talking on the phone and Hancher wasn't on their GPS because Hancher wasn't around. The new mm-hmm. building wasn't there. So they ended up in this kind of random other, I won't say it, but this other university building. And all of a sudden, I'm on the way there, and I, I hear, I'm talking to my mom on the phone, and she's like, on the stars, and I'm like, oh, where are you? You know, And I hear this other voice get on, and it's the receptionist for this other building, and she says, hey, I think I'm here with your parents. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm on my way, you know, like, it's a, I'll get into it, but I'm on my way. She's like, yeah, I'm here with your parents, I think, and uh, we're trying to figure out where you work. Are you in the back dock? Are you the custodial? Do you work with the kitchen staff? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Assumption? Yeah, and I think it's like these these this culmination of this story, which is like, it's, I mean, and my mom, if you if you know my mom, she she laughed so hard when we when we like were in private because she's she like lets it roll off her back and she's used to it and she's strong and for me I'm really sensitive and I internalize it but it's like this little it's a microaggression right mm-hmm. but I think it's really important especially like I wanted this story to culminate into and and like have this really packaged thing for what I call it like the gut punch the comp- the gut punch of that microaggression because it really really kind of showcases. For the optics of it, you can be working and you can be like sustaining in this ecosystem of all these nuances. And, and but no, where do you work? Yeah, yeah. are you a janitor? Yeah, and, that, and the whole story too is like there's nothing wrong with that. I worked custodial. I did. I worked roofing. I worked sure. and like there's there's nothing. Um, I think I end. I'm trying to remember the story too. Now. Um, I end it with uh, work isn't just saying that these these jobs there's there's no honor in it, but it's saying that those aren't the only jobs that define us. Mm-hmm. which I think is a really, really hard thing for some people to swallow. Yeah, boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we could probably go for another three hours yeah. hearing these <laughs> stories, <laughs> but I'm afraid we probably yeah. have to respect the, the time of the audience, too. And I, I, gosh, I can't thank you both so much for coming here. Really, it's, it's just wonderful. Both just wonderful people in the first place. But, you know, I, I would be really interested to have people in the audience. Just raise your hand if you're parent or grandparent was an immigrant to the country. Yeah. So, yeah that's a lot. Yeah, so, you know, if, um, yeah, 
Yeah, I, I just want to add, uh, you know, the assumption that people made by just the way that you look or the accent that you have or the way that you dress. I, I'm going to just say quick things. You know, Yuan Fabric, uh, they open yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. On their grand opening, they invite the city council to come and, you know, uh. do this. <laughs> and you know that, like, all the customers, they, they will come because if you are in the forest, like forest maybe 100 on the line or forest 50 on the line, you get discount. And people like raise there from the morning. And they told me exactly what time I should be there as a part of the city council. And I went there. Yes. It's car, <laughs> you know, I'm not changing anything. And I went there, and I guess like walking confidence, going inside the store, and you know, the people who are in the store, they stopped me. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, oh, you know, just go to the line. We did not oh. open yet. You know? oh. And oh. before that, I saw like from far away, I just saw like, you know, uh, the city manager in, going, yeah. And I saw Susan Mims going inside, and she just opened for them because I was in the parking lot trying to hurry up and get there. As soon as I get to the door, she didn't even bother to ask me who I am. She mm. just said, go there, the customers on that line, you have to stay outside until we, open. we haven't opened yet. I told her, mm, I don't care to buy. I think you guys invited me. <laughs> <laughs> she said, who you are? I said, I'm one of the city council. <laughs> she said, oh, yeah, you can come. And, you know, yeah, just like, I yeah. don't look like city council. Maybe yeah. <laughs> that's why. Well, you do now. You look like our city council. So thank you so much, Chui Renteria and Mazda here.